Uh, we're going to be in the first chapter of Luke this morning. I thought it was page 591. I think it's page 731, or we have two different Bibles traveling around. So it's Luke chapter 1. I know that. Uh, try 731 if you're looking for a page number. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament. We have, uh, for several weeks now, been uh, giving attention to the concept of peace. What does it mean? Peace is a word that drives deep into the heart of Christmas. And already this morning we've uh, sung it, or you've heard it through Scripture. The passage that sort of has been an anchor passage was when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the announced the birth of Christ this evening, born this day in the city of David as your Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Go there while the multitude of angels broke out and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests. And so we've, we've for several Sundays now, been kind of turning the word around and uh, seeing what it means. I'd like to do that one more time today and this morning from Luke 1. But before I do, I want to show you a couple of symbols of peace from our time. Some may be more familiar than uh, the other. Here's the first one. This is called, uh, well, if you were around during the Reagan era, this was the MX missile. It's a nuclear missile. Um, It's also called the peacekeeper. And several years ago, I used this. It, it's, it seems like relevant to use again. It was called the Peacekeeper Missile. It is called the Peacekeeper Missile. It, to this day, it is an operation. There's 10 nuclear warheads in the, in the nose. Why would you call this a peacekeeper? Well, it's representative of an approach which says the threat of violence preserves the peace. Which is in opposition to the next symbol that you'll probably be more familiar with, uh, the peace sign, right? This, is, this symbol was derived from two letters in the semaphore alphabet. You know semaphores, the flags? The letter N and the letter D. That's the letter N and the letter D, which stand for nuclear disarmament. So what you end up having here is two very different perspectives to peace. One says, you, to ensure the peace, you need to have the biggest stick. The other says, the reason we don't have peace is because everybody has sticks. If we just didn't have a stick, there'd be peace. peace keep, the peacekeeper sort of peace kind of falls in the bucket of uh, like the talking politics, political ideology of realism, political realism. Realists have a bleak perspective of human nature. And so they're, they're not overly optimistic about what might happen if we got rid of our weapons, for example. The kind of effect, however, the tendency of this perspective is that we end up arming the whole society without dealing with a problem. 
That's sort of the flaw of the peacekeeper. World War I sort of took place this way. Europe weaponized to a break point. The flaw of the peace sign sort of category, it sits in the political category of political idealism. Idealists hold this, which sort of has a hope for mankind in the sense that we would be different if our environment was different. Change our environment and we'll behave differently. Get rid of guns or missiles and we'll get rid of war. As though you can throw that part out without throwing ourselves out with it. And what I think is astute about that approach is it it does rightly critique the weaponization that comes with the opposite perspective. It's rightly pointing to if you have weapons, you're more inclined to use them. I, I do, however, believe it's naive about human nature. There's an old Saturday Night Live skit, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Do you remember that? Am I allowed to do this? My favorite one goes like this. Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. I can imagine a world without war. And I can imagine a world without hate. And I can imagine us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. (laughs) That sort of gets to the heart of the human condition, right? You... (laughs) If you'd entirely disarmed yourself, they wouldn't, and there'd be no peace. Now, there are other approaches. These are not the only two approaches to peace. And in fact, over the past 20 years, we've seen different, different approaches to the notion of peace. When the United States became the only pronounced superpower on earth, we entered into the role of being the world's policeman. That's an approach to peace. Didn't work out that well. We're now sort of in a cultural swing towards isolation. There's another approach to peace. All of these are astute in one perspective, limited in another. It was uh, somebody, some great prime minister right before the Second World War who announced peace in our time, right? It's probably not gonna happen. The question is, what is real peace? What is the real way of peace? That's our question this morning we're gonna ask, particularly in our lives, in our homes, in our friendships. What is the way of peace? So if you're looking in Luke chapter one, you'll see there is, in verse 67, it's, the title is Zechariah's Prophecy. And Zechariah is the father of a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a key figure in the Christmas story. In fact, of the four Gospels we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, three of the four begin with the account of John the Baptist, not of Jesus. And the reason that's the case is because the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, speak, give the Israelite people a great hope for a future redeemer, a savior, Their word is Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for the anointed one or the savior. The Greek word for that is Christ. There's this 
expectation of the Jewish people that one day a redeemer was going to come and that redeemer was going to come out of the line of their most famous kings, King David. He was going to come out of the line of King David. He was going to rise up. He was going to be a king for the people. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That's one of those hopes. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. And this Savior, this Messiah, this Christ, all of those are sort of in the same, mean the same thing roughly. The prophets spoke of him. All of the prophets of the Israelite people, they spoke of the Savior coming. And some of these prophets said, before he comes, one will, a prophet will come before him who will make straight the path for this Savior King to come. This is hundreds of years, in some cases over a thousand years before Christ. And John is that prophet. He is that voice. Now, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were really old, and Elizabeth was barren, so the birth of John is a miracle in its own sort of way. You might say, John, who is, he's less, right, he's less than Christ, uh, he's, but he's born in a similar miracle. It's like a lesser miracle for the lesser prophet to come before the greater miracle and the greater Savior. And so John the Baptist is born, and Zechariah, his father, uh, the Holy Spirit comes on him, and he speaks what we're going to read here. What I'm going to read to you is the word, or maybe he sings it. It's, It's sort of like a hymn. It says it's a prophecy. What that means in the Bible is that the the Lord uses the mouth of Zechariah to say the words of God. So Zechariah opens his mouth, but out come the words of God. So this is what Zechariah says over his son, John. Let me read. Verse 67, it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Okay, before I say it, I'm only going to read one sentence, but the sentence goes from verse 68 to 75. It's long It's one sentence in the Greek, so bear with me. Here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's a long sentence. Now, it is a long sentence, but a lot of the things you heard here, we've already talked about. I mean, it really is, in one sentence, Zechariah is profiling the expectation of Christ, right? Blessed be the Lord of God of Israel. God is coming to save. That's verse 68. God is coming to save his people, 
to redeem his people. There's that expectancy. And how is he doing it? He's raised up the horn of salvation from the line of David. He's raising up a Messiah. Horn of salvation is like the power. He's raising up a power from the line of King David who will do this work of salvation. And verse 70 says, and this is what the prophets have been saying the whole time, that one would come who would save us from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. And he says, and this is in keeping with the promises that God made to our forefathers, to Abraham. So Zechariah is saying, a redeemer is now coming. And this redeemer is the Messiah we've been waiting for and hoping for. And he's coming to save us as the prophet said and as the Lord himself promised to our forefather Abraham 2,000 years ago. And verse 74 sort of kind of, it says it all. What's gonna happen? It's expressed this way, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. We might serve him without fear. In thinking about the word peace, as we have been wrestling with it, that that is, in a profound way, the idea of peace, that you and I would be able to stand before the Lord without fear. That we would be right with God and God would be right with us. And there'd be nothing between us That's the hope. Now, all of this so far far has been about Jesus. None of it's been about John. I sort of, I muse in my mind how this would look. You know, Zechariah leaning over John the Baptist's bassinet, getting ready to sing him a song, and he opens his mouth, and it's all about some other kid. I mean, all of this is about Jesus. John does give a shout-out here, though. Verse 76 a new child will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. There, that's John. So there's a redeemer coming. It's gonna be Jesus. He's born in the line of David. He's foretold through the prophets. He's anticipated through the promise. He's coming to bring peace. And that peace is expressed in our ability to serve the Lord without fear all of our days in holiness and righteousness. And John is gonna precede that. And John is going to have a message. Verse 77, you'll go before him in 77 to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And then the song turns back to Jesus. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what Christ came to do. He came to be the light of the world, the truth of the world, to lead people into the way of peace, to show people who are at enmity with the Lord, who are fearful of God, who have things wrong with the Lord. The Lord Christ came to set all of that right so that we at last might not have to worry about the anger or fear of God, but rest in his love and serve him without fear. 
Christ came to lead us in the way of peace. Now, I try to imagine how, how this would have been heard by the original hearers. And I think it's probably not too different than today. I, I bet you, if, I don't know of too many people who don't want to be at peace with God. Just about everybody believes there's some kind of God. And if we were to say, would you like to be at peace with God? They'd say, sure. I'll be at peace with God. I'll, I'll take two of those. Double peace. I think we want to be at peace with God, but what we really want is to be at peace in the ways that we're connected in this world. Israel was the same way. This prophecy here speaks of God coming in his tender mercy. It speaks of the forgiveness of sin. It speaks of a savior leading us in the way of righteousness and peace and light and all of these things, but it also says a few things that they got caught up on, like he will deliver us from our enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. They cared about that. Peace with God, yeah, we'll take peace with God. Is he gonna take care of our enemies? Just make sure, up there it said he's gonna care for our enemies. Can I underline that? Can I highlight that? We'll take all the peace that God has to offer, three scoops of it, as long as he takes care of our enemies. I think, as a result, in the ministry of Christ, Christ became fairly unattractive to the Jewish hope. Right? Israel had, for hundreds of years, been under oppression. So when they hear a song like this, well, you know what they think? They think Rome. You mean you're going to get rid of Rome, right? You're going to get rid of injustice, right? That's what's in their heart. But when Christ came and he was speaking more and more and more about a right relationship with the Lord and less and less and less about Caesar, it's not what they wanted to hear. And I think, I think people today are about the same. I think just about anybody would be happy to be at peace with God, but what they really want is to be at peace with the things all around them. In other words, these relationships, which really at the end of the day are secondary, I think we could all agree that if there is a God, how we exist before God is probably the most important question there is to answer. But day in and day out, I think many people behave as though these sorts of questions, how we relate to others, how we relate at work and in family and in work and school and all of these other sorts of layers, these which are actually secondary to the Lord are primary because they're in front of us. And if we don't see that God's going to fix that, like, we'll take all the peace in the world, but you're going to fix that, right? What does the way of peace look like in this world? What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave this section in Luke for a second. I'm just leave it. We're going to talk a little bit about different ways peace appears in this world, and we're going to come back because we really can't get very far away from here. Here's how peace sometimes looks. Sometimes in our lives, the way of peace looks like keeping the peace. Just doing the work to keep the peace. 
That's the first expression, is to keep the peace. You might see this with uh, parents. You know, there's times we've had to put our kids on different floors to keep the peace. A teacher might have to arrange the chairs a certain way to keep the peace. Keeping the peace might involve you not bringing up that thing that that other person did, even though you want to say it so badly. You know, you want to mention the fact that they rolled over the mailbox with your new car. You really want to say it, but keeping the peace means you don't say it because you know if you said it, they would be like, here we go again. You just can't get over the mailbox, can you? Everywhere we turn, and you, you would, I'm just saying, well, yeah, you're just saying, but you weren't keeping the peace. Keeping the peace is being attentive to the environment. Romans 12 has a passage about keeping the peace. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That, that sort of captures the spirit of that well. Be attentive. And notice it has you doing the work. Okay, we all want peace. Just want you to know, Scripture has you doing the work. You, to the degree that's possible, live peaceably. Don't frustrate. Don't be a jerk. Don't be so up in what you deserve. This passage, if you notice it, it has its own limits. It's not, it is not a command that you shall always at all times live peaceably. It recognizes you cannot. There's occasions where it's out of your control. It's not saying to somebody who's in a very abusive relationship that God's will for you is just to roll over and take your lumps. It's not saying that. It's not saying to, uh, imagine in a boardroom, an executive in a boardroom of other executives, some business, and the boardroom starts to talk in such a way that's heading in an, an unethical direction. It's not saying, hey, at all costs, you keep the peace. Don't just go along with that. To the degree that's possible, be a peaceful man. That's what it's saying. That's the first kind of peace. Here's the second kind of peace. It, coming to peace. So sometimes being in the way of peace is keeping the peace. Sometimes the way of peace is coming to peace. It means doing the work to come to terms with or get over a situation. Sometimes it's getting over yourself. Some decision in your life, something that's happened to you or a mistake. Every day you wake up, you're living, you're living in it. You're living in this decision or this mistake. Your life is irrevocably going that way. When you look, you look later, when you're older and wiser and you wish, had I done something, it would go this way. And you can allow that to eat you up day in and day out, always reminding you of what you could have had or you can come to peace with it. At some point, you got to come to peace with something. You have to do the work, some things in our life, to come to peace with the life that you have. 
Paul the Apostle had a situation. It's, it's in 2 Corinthians. He had a situation where the Lord visited upon him what he describes as a thorn in his side. Some, we don't know what it is. I assume it's some sort of physical malady, some sort of sickness or illness, but some, for some reason, the Lord visited upon Paul a thorn. And this is what Paul says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He came to peace with it. That's what happened. He came to peace with it. Can you imagine the ministry of Paul if he was not satisfied with God's words? Can you imagine how unfortunate his life would have turned out if he had just been embittered against the Lord? The Lord gives me this thorn in my side. He won't get rid of it. No matter, why would a good God allow a bad thing to happen to a person and just kind of harumph? It would have obliterated his ministry. Now notice, even here, the teaching to the Christian is not just to roll over. The way of peace is not just passivity and saying whatever happens is the Lord's will. Even here, you have Paul who gets this malady from the Lord turning to the Lord and saying three times, spare me from this. Help me. It's, it's this wrestling with the Lord and this whether it's divinely said in such a graceful way like this, or we just simply realize this is our lot in life, I need to come to peace with it. There's things in our life we have to do the work for. I don't think there is a healthy marriage on the face of the earth where each spouse has not come to peace about something. Because anybody at the wedding altar is convinced the other person's going to turn out right. You know, 22, and you're all, you know nothing, and yet you're hyper confident. Oh, I'm sorry. There's 22 year olds here. You're great. You're great people. You know what I mean. I was there. I was hyper confident, and I knew nothing. It was said about me. And I knew she was going to get all of her baggage fixed. Just, you know, one or two years around the block with me, she was going to be squared away. Right? That's how we feel. If we don't say it, that's sort of our hope. We're banking on it. Maybe. Come to peace with it. Some point along the way, the Lord says, he or she is not changing, but they're yours. Peace. Here's a third way of peace. It's called making peace. So sometimes we keep it, sometimes we come to it, sometimes we have to make it. Making peace involves changing the environment, the relationship, setting things right, righting a wrong, putting an end to an injustice, toppling something over that needs to be toppled over, setting something up that doesn't exist. This is work that you, the follower of God, must do. It's work. Coming to peace sometimes in our language is called war.
Jesus came to make peace. We know that. His title is the Prince of Peace. When he was born, they announced peace. Zechariah says he's going to lead us in the way of peace. And then when he sent out his disciples into ministry, this is what he said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, that's ironic. Now, Jesus is not a jihadist. He's not a crusader. He's not out to get people. Jesus never drew a sword. That's not what he's saying. He's actually speaking in a very similar context as the message. He's speaking to his disciples who are going to take the message of hope and righteousness and God out. They're going to take the notion that to be right before the Lord is the most important thing. And if you get that right, then everything else sorts of works itself out. They're bringing that message to a world who wants God to do all of those things and not really worry about this. And he's saying, don't think that's going to go well. You think you're going to come to people and say the problem in your life is really your relationship with the Lord and not that person or that thing? Don't think it's going to be a top hit, a big seller. It's not. Some of the things God's people have to do to be in the way of peace cause conflict. This is the same section of scripture where Christ says, I've come to divide father from son and brother from brother, mother from child because of the way of peace. We do the work there. You want peace in your life? It's work. It's the work to keep it. It's the work to come to it. It's the work to make it. And then there's the question of which one of those three do I do when and how much to what measure? How much does a person in a somewhat abusive relationship keep peace, come to peace, or make it? Well, I can't answer your question. Truth is, I've got my hands full of my own life on this question. Not abusive relationship, she's great. It's the basic idea of peace. But I do know that Zechariah shows us where to start. Zechariah preaches a message of being at peace with God. And when we are at peace with God, we may serve him without fear. And when we serve God without fear, amazing things happen in all of our other relationships. Being at peace with God means the light of Christ has risen upon our life and guides us in dark places in his way of peace. And when God's light is guiding us, amazing things happen. You know how much work it is to make peace, to be in the way of peace? You, where do you get that energy in these relationships? Where are you getting that energy to do that? Don't you see Christ did the work of making peace with us? He brought all of that to us. We didn't do that. We didn't redeem ourselves. God did the work to redeem us and bring us into peace. Just like you and I must, in very many cases, do the difficult, discerning, laborious, lonely work of discerning, is this a place to bring peace or make peace, come to peace? What do I do here? It's us. 
Imagine if you serve the Lord without fear. I mean, nearly every one of us can think to a place where fear has driven us, guided us, tempted us, pressured us. Whether it's that boardroom example, which may be pretty far away. I mean, just pick a classroom example. Everybody was in high school at one point. There's plenty of fear in high school to go around, even if it's just fear of losing your cool points. Can you imagine how different we would be if we were fully, I mean fully, faithfully confident in what God says about us? Can you imagine how free you would be as an individual to do the right thing if you knew, if, if you had God standing right next to you saying, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. If he was physically whispering into your ear, I am your rich inheritance. You are my adopted son. I love you like a father loves a daughter. Can you imagine what you might do when you're staring into a difficult situation? When he would say, you don't need to work, I will provide for you. Just lean on me. The best way you can worship me is to lean on me. Can you imagine how different we would be? How different we would be if right here, the, you could feel his breath in your ear. So real. To worship God without fear is amazing and changes all of these sorts of things. It gives us the energy into all of these sorts of, like, can you imagine how you might be different in your life if your identity was entirely, completely intact and correct in light of what God says about you. If just, if God was holding your hand and you knew just by the way he held your hand that you are fully accepted and loved. You don't have to worry about what they're saying to you, that the God of the universe who spoke creation into being thinks highly of you. Thinks of you has a hope for you and is on your side. That's where we get that's where we get what we need to make peace. The marriages that struggle are marriages that are looking for the energy for peace inside of the marriage. And so they're taking from one another. I want to be at peace, I need it. They're, but they're not looking to the Lord. They don't have peace with God. They're not referencing the Lord. They're caught stealing from one another moments of peace rather than infused by God to bring it. Because when we have things right with the Lord, we can do things for other people's benefit. I'll close with this. I think for most people, the notion of peace with God, yes sir, yes sir, two bags full, I'll take it. Does it come with the purchase? I'll take it. It's free, great, throw it in the bag. We, because it's free, we speak about it so lightly. What we really want, I think most people, day in and day out, is 
that to not be painful and for me to feel confident over there and for me to be successful there and for me to get my comeuppance over there and what I'm due over there. That's sort of how we live. And the Lord, is, the Lord would say, these things will always be out of order or you will maintain them by pure exhaustion if you're not at peace with God. But if you're right with him, he will lead you in the way of peace. And you'll have his power and his energy as you labor in his love. That's, that's why Jesus came. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom God's favor rests. Amen, will you pray with me? Lord, I am certain that each one of us has a place of weakness in this life where we could use peace. We need peace, we want peace, we pray for peace. Help us not, Father, just to drive by our relationship with you. As though it's so correct, help us to pause and scrutinize the things we believe about you and ourselves. Do we accept your forgiveness? Do we confess our sin? Do we want to be like you? Do we believe that you're faithful? Do we trust in the resurrection? Do we lean on the Holy Spirit? Do we have hope in what you're going to do for us? Do we feel that we're forgotten? Are we buying into the lie that we're unloved? Do we fear that you're angry with us? Lord, I pray for great work. What great work would be done there between us and you? And then we would see the rest of the world in the right light. Then we could ask for wisdom as to how we should walk in the way of peace. And you would answer. Lord, I pray this for those who are close to you and for those who are far, those who trust in you and those who, even now maybe, they're just beginning to be curious about the notion of faith. I pray you would be our Lord of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.